Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Josias Podcast. This week, we are joined by Professor Thomas Pink. Uh, it's so good to have you. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks. Thanks, Joel. And thanks, Pater. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to discuss. Yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, such a joy to have you on here. I remember we met uh, eight years ago now in, in Thrumau at a conference on the idea of Christendom. And I remember your talk at that conference was uh, made a big impression on me and has sort of guided a lot of my reflections since then. So it's great to have you here on the podcast. Well, I, I'm very glad to join in this this enormous project. Uh, enormous, both because it covers a huge range of concerns and because it has a big job to do, because uh, the amount of sheer batty error... <laughs> uh, around in our culture in this area, uh, well, you know, it can't be overstated. Uh, and and putting it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as you know, we always start with a piece of music which we just uh, which we just heard or listened to before we started, and then spliced in in post. Uh, and that was uh, the lovely cantata uh, by Bach, "Sheep May Safely Graze," and that's because, of course, this podcast we're discussing coercion specifically and uh, this is the old uh, image of coercion is that of a shepherd of of loving uh, direction which is the image famously associated with Christ and also with his bishops uh, and uh, it's just such a lovely cantata and I think one of the reasons we always start with a, a piece of music is because uh, here we integralists take seriously not only law's coercive dimension, but also the persuasive, if not coercive, power of art itself to move the mind and to dispose the emotions towards docility to reason, I guess. Potter, did you have anything uh, to say about the, the version we chose? Or Well, this is this is a recording with Ton Kopman, uh He's my favorite. <laughs> and the soprano is actually Elisabeth von Magnus, who's uh, the daughter of another famous conductor, namely Nicholas Hanoncourt. Um, but ah. she's singing under Tom Kopman, who's kind of a, a rival to her father. <laughs> uh, Professor Pink, did you, uh, do, do you have any uh, thoughts on Bach or... or or sheep and grazing? I, 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 I've never wished wish to threaten sheep in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I guess we should start by just asking, what does it mean for law to be coercive? What, what, what are we talking about here? Professor, maybe you could... Yeah, I mean, so it's very important uh, to be clear about this notion. Coercion has a, a really bad smell in in our culture nowadays. Yes. Uh, if you if you talk about coercion, it's invariably seen as something really bad. Uh, and if it ever happens, it must be it must be a, a last resort uh, uh, in a way that has very little to do with serving the interests of the person coerced. Particularly if you're talking about coercion that's anywhere near the realm of belief or opinion or thought. 
you know, it's one thing to say, okay, this madman has gone out and, you know, uh, fired a gun in public and we're going to, you know, lock him up so that he can't do that anymore. It's another thing when you start saying, no, coercive uh, can be a tool for uh, uh, getting people to see reason or whatever. That that in particular is not understood. Um, the the idea of of a coercive regulation of belief is a real no no um, uh, amongst quite sophisticated academics, um, and it's 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 seen. Uh, we'll come back to this. Uh, it's seen both as amazingly morally repellent and also as somehow kind of impossible. Actually, those two, two views are obviously in deep tension with each other because if it right. were really impossible, then you needn't get morally het up about it because it never really happens. <laughs> um, this already suggests that, that some really bad false consciousness uh, 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 and, uh, uh, and self-deception going on here, and we'll come back to that. Yeah, I mean, it is a highlight of the liberal regime that it advertises itself as doing one thing while doing something completely different. If you want to get government money, if you want to keep your business open, all sorts of actions, there's tremendous coercive power. And this is like in America, of course, a huge debate right now. Can you can you refuse to sell cakes to uh, for a for a gay wedding or something like that? Like the idea that liberal uh, institutions don't coerce is if you examine it, it's just stark hypocrisy. Yeah, and they, they, they will coerce at the level of belief. But let's, let's come, back to, come back to that and why that happens by just, just looking at what coercion is. Right. And the basic idea of it, it's a legal notion, really. Um, uh, it, it's deep within the Catholic and Roman law traditions, and it involves... Um, in its, its proper form, some authority issuing a directive which involves imposing um, uh, or invoking an obligation to do what's directed, and behind and accompanying that uh, um, directive, and what makes it genuinely coercive, is some threat of punishment um, if you don't act as directed. Um, so we've got, uh, at a very basic level, uh, 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 a directive uh, backed by a threat of sanction or punishment, something bad, coming from an authority. Um, and it seems uh, centrally um, to be directed at some sort of capacity for agency. Um, now, all these are very complex notions, um, and within philosophical uh, and uh, political and legal philosophical history, we will see many differing conceptions of um, the basis of authority, um, of the uh, basis for punishing people, and the relationship between the directive and the capacity for agency. Um, but that's the, that's the core notion. And, and you'll see something like that idea going on in someone like Hobbes 
just as you will see it within the scholastic tradition. Yeah, that's Hobbes is, is an interesting point of contrast here. I don't know if you saw Michael Hanby's uh, recent article on integralism in, in First Things, where he expresses the the worry that integralists or Catholic integralism will will sort of degrade into a sort of Catholic Hobbesian power politics. But I think what your work has shown is is the profound differences in the way in which Hobbes uh, understands the coercive function of law and the way the Catholic tradition understands this coercive function. Yeah, absolutely. As, as forms of libel, intellectual libel go, you know, Hamby's really, uh, uh, really is a champion. Um, because uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 of all the wacky and in- integralist things been appearing on the, on the internet, that was, that was, that was not as personally offensive as one even more recent than that, which we won't discuss, perhaps. Yes. Uh, uh, but, but that, as a form of intellectual libel, was, was profound. Because what Hobbes does, he's a brilliant man, he, his entire project is anti-integralist. And yes. what he has to do um, in Leviathan and other writings leading up to it... Um, is to radically reconceptualize coercive authority so that he can only take the form of state authority. What he wants to do is to reconceive what coercive authority is so that if you share Hobbes's understanding of it, there's absolutely no question that could ever involve or belong to a church. So uh, whatever churches do, it won't be what Hobbes's p- picture of coercive authority is about. And that's right, surely right. right. Um, so it's, it's, it's an extremely aggressive reconceptualization, a very brilliant one, to remove the idea of there being a, a spiritual form of coercive authority belonging to a church. So Hobbes's state will have no competitor if Hobbes is right. Right. And when it comes down to, in him, basically, is this right, that it's, uh, it's just adding one more passion to the passions that are controlling you. So you might be controlled by greed or lust, and, and you want to go steal something or, or rape someone. And then the state adds another passion, namely the fear of punishment, and that overrides the the other passions, so in uh, is more determining than of your behaviour than other passions. Exactly. That's exactly what's going on. So let's go back uh, to look just at the idea of the directive. Now, a directive, a legal directive, what we think of as a legal obligation, um, serves a very central function. It's to um, get people to do things to act as directed and uh, right. uh, avoid acting otherwise. And that, that on, on any view of law, has got to be what, what uh, uh, they're about. Um, uh, so one central issue here is um, how does the legal directive get people to act as directed? 
And this is actually a very, very important question and raises metaphysical problems. Because what we're dealing with here is an idea of power. Uh, now, by power, I'm just going to mean, very generally, a capacity to produce or prevent outcomes. And mm -hmm. we, we, a very familiar form of power is ordinary causation. So if I take a brick and hurl it at a window uh, and the window breaks, that's a very good example of the brick uh, or an event involving it exercising a capacity to produce an outcome that the window breaks. And that's, that's very, very obvious power. So that's why we right. think of causation as a kind of power, because it, it involves capacity to produce or prevent outcomes. <clears throat> but um, there might be other kinds of power than ordinary causation uh, involving bricks and the like. And uh, one very, very important power is the power of reason. Um, so, well, look, when I produce an argument to get you to believe something or uh, to get you to decide to do something, I'm going to present you with various justifications to do with the truth in relation to belief or to do with some with goodness or desirability in relation to outcomes. And I'm going to treat you as having a capacity to be moved by the justifications I uh, make available to you. Um, and that capacity to be moved by the justifications involves an idea of power. The justifications, once you're aware of them, have this capacity to get you to form what philosophers call psychological attitudes, mental states like belief or, or decision and intention, leading you to act. Right. Right. This, I mean, this is related to what we talked about in the last episode on Leo XIII's Libertas, that um, human beings, because they have reason, they can consider things in a universal way. They can consider uh, then alternative ways of reaching their happiness. They can, say, can deliberate about whether to do this or that uh, in regard to their happiness. It also ties into, I think, a long-running theme of our podcast and something that you've already hit on, which is that here Hobbes, and I think particularly probably Hume, they have to be extremely thoroughgoing. I think they are concerned with power, and I think Hobbes is. His goal is to keep the church out and make the state absolute. But to do that, he has to change... He has to reject all the metaphysics that came before. And one of the ways they do that is by taking the example of causation, uh, the paradigmatic example ceases being like a candle heating a pot or something like that, and instead becomes a billiard ball hitting another billiard ball and uh, or something like that. And then it's much easier to say, and therefore there's no such thing as a final cause, which once you make that move... You can, of course, you know, reason being a cause makes no sense if there's no final causes. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, um, it gets very complicated in the early modern period um, because there are various disputes in, internal to the Aristotelian scholastic right. tradition about how to, to model reason as a power. Um, but certainly... Um, 
what it seems to involve is objects of thought, objects of your thought, um, so something very unlike a brick, um, uh, exercising a power over you, uh, uh, being a kind of cause in that respect, where the basis of the power is a kind of value, like truth or goodness. Um, you know, th- then you'll get a debate as, as to how to uh, 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 tie this, this fundamental phenomenon into an Aristotelian structure. Um, uh, some people will say, for example, the power of truth is a form of efficient causation. Uh, a lot more people will say that the power of goodness is a kind of final causation. And there are all sorts of reasons for doing it, but, but the, 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 the broad phenomenon is something like that going on. And so um, when I argue with you or uh, when, as I, as a lawgiver, uh, 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 issue a legal directive, I, I'm engaging with you as possessing a capacity for reason which involves your being susceptible to a certain kind of power. It's called a normative power, provided by a value operating through an object of your thought which will then move you to the extent that you're reasonable or rational to form an attitude and furthermore if it's a practical attitude like a decision to perform an action at the point of decision and then the action decided upon which I want you to do uh, to get you to conform to the law um, and if it's a law it will involve a very distinctive form of normative power one we think of as involving obligation, um, which will um, engage a capacity uh, 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 to respond on your part, which involve you yourself possessing a power, uh, a power of freedom. So there are two actually quite interesting and metaphysically controversial by modern lights forms of power here involved. One is a power not exercised directly by you, but to which you are susceptible, which is a power to be moved by values, truth and goodness. Um, And then there's a power you yourself exercise uh, in relation to the good, um, which is a power of freedom, which we were discussing in the last podcast, uh, a natural freedom, a power to do more than one thing, uh, a power to obey the law or to do something else. And, of course, the law right. is about directing you to, to, to exercise your power of freedom in the good way as opposed to some other bad way. Right. Yeah, and I think it's it's pretty easy to see from... That is, it fits very well with our common experience um, to understand law as not simply giving you uh, an extra motive, the motive of fear of punishment, but as really... Um, both directing you to some to the consideration of some good and also um, obliging you so that I think we, we experience ourselves that when we when something is against the law it's not just that we're afraid of punishment that's not the only thing that holds us back from doing what is forbidden by the law but it's also both that we see that that it's contrary to some desirable good for us to act against the law and that we feel uh, obliged not to, that it, there's, there's some um, authority that makes it, 
contrary to our, our specifically human good to go against it. There's something immoral about acting against a legitimate law. Yes. It's, it's a really, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, uh, idea, this idea of obligation. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a matter of huge debate within uh, scholastic tradition becomes ever more uh, um, uh, deep, I think, um, in late scholasticism. I'm not somebody who thinks late scholasticism is a degraded form of scholasticism. It's actually, a, by the 16th and 17th centuries, becoming ever more sophisticated in the way that it's teasing out various tensions internal to this whole tradition. But I think... Uh, again, we needn't look at the various warring positions because what everyone, I think, within this tradition agrees on, whether they're Franciscans or Jesuits or uh, 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 whether they follow Scotus or Thomas or, or whatever, is that obligation is a kind of uh, justificatory force, a vis directiva, uh, which is, when they talk about it as a force, is literally a force. It is productive of change. Right. In a way that's consistent with our freedom, it's not. It's not like a brick hitting you and knocking you out. You can resist this force, and uh, uh, if you're if you're uh, unreasonable and morally bad, you will resist it. <laughs> uh, right. uh, um, and obviously, how that's possible has to be explained. But it, you're you, as a as a being with the capacity for reason, you're always susceptible to it. And the more reasonable you are, the more susceptible you will be to it. So in a way, and again, they have to explain how this is possible, in a way that never removes your freedom. At any rate, not in this life. Yeah. It might be interesting just very briefly to mention the difference between some of the Franciscan thinkers and Suarez on whether a lawgiver is necessary for, for obligation. Um, it is when I was reading what you wrote on this, I was reminded of a, a famous essay of Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, *Modern Moral Philosophy*, where she talks about how, well, her thesis is that modern moral philosophers should stop talking about moral obligation because moral obligation only really makes sense if there's a divine lawgiver, which they don't believe in, and so they should just talk about. Uh, they should go back to a more, a more consistently Aristotelian position of uh, things that are virtuous or vicious in the sense that they tend or don't tend towards your happiness. But to have obligation in the strict sense, she says, you need to have a lawgiver. And here you, you, you point out an interesting disagreement between uh, the Franciscans and the Jesuits on this. Well, I think, I think almost all of them would have disagreed with Elizabeth Anscombe. They yes. found a view most peculiar... Because it's uh, you, you even say in your, your footnote, and sorry, you can answer, but I, I loved this footnote, uh, 49 on this paper. Uh, for treatments of the morality of obligation is supposedly distinctive in this way. See both Bernard Williams and Elizabeth Anscombe, Modern Moral Philosophy. Anscombe's view of the morality of obligation as quite different from a morality of the virtues has been very influential. But it is quite opposed to late scholasticism and involves a view of obligation that is profoundly post-Hobbesian, something of which, despite the vivid appeals Anska makes to imagined history in her paper, she was quite unaware. <laughs> I loved that. Well, I mean, there, there are two things about, about, about Elizabeth. One, she was not good at history. She, was, she, was, <laughs> she had no historical sense whatsoever. 
Um, she she was also intellectually much more like Bernard Williams uh, uh, yes. than you might imagine. They were both. I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, and they were both in the uh, uh, philosophy department, occupying chairs. They wouldn't talk to each other. They would virtually sort of, <laughs> sort of communicate through through third parties. But actually, their moral theories have many similarities. Uh, they both assume that the morality of the virtues. Uh, uh, what I call a morality of, of appraisal, um, is quite distinct from uh, the morality of obligation or direction. Um, and that's because they are, very importantly, post-Hobbesian. Um, uh, when I was introduced to obligation as a child by my parents, uh, they weren't that Victorian, so they didn't use words like duty and obligation to me. Uh, if, I, if I beat my little sister up, they come along and say... That was very bad of you, Tom, to, to beat your little sister up. And right. so they'd immediately un- communicate the idea of an obligation as, st- as a standard to breach which would be bad. So they immediately use the idea of moral badness to communicate the idea of an obligation. Hence, showing that the morality of directive obligation and the morality of appraisal as morally good or bad, morally virtuous or vicious, are two sides of the same coin at a very deep level. And our understanding of the one gives us an understanding of the other. Which is why, of course, in late scholasticism, you're getting people coming along and saying, you don't need a divine lawgiver, to uh, a legislator, to make sense of moral obligation, obligation under natural law, because the idea of an obligation under a natural law is simply the idea of <clears throat> um, a standard it would be bad of you to breach. And we can make sense of a standard it would be bad of you to breach prior to divine legislation. Yes, so that, that's uh, some of the Franciscans. Yes, and some of the Jesuits as well, uh, uh, like Gabriel Vasquez. Um, and uh, Suarez doesn't take this position. Right. Um, as nor, I think, would would necessarily uh, a a lot of Dominicans. Um, But when they don't take this position, it's very interesting the way they fight it. They don't say, oh, we would have no... They don't do what Elizabeth did, Elizabeth Anscombe did, say, we'd have no idea of obligation if we didn't have the idea of a divine lawgiver, because an obligation just is uh, a divine command. They say, well, no, mm, look, there's moral badness, and then there's moral badness <laughs> of, of the sort that's involved in doing wrong. And the moral badness that's involved in doing wrong is what, what, what Suarez calls prevaricatio, uh, 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 which he takes out of the translation of, uh, Vulgate translation of, of Paul, which is, is a kind of transgressive badness which is the moral badness in particular vice involved in disobeying a superior. Right. Yeah, and if the Dominicans would, I guess, take this position because St. Thomas includes the, the lawgiver as part of the account of law. So law has um, various causes that uh, contribute to its essence. You have... Uh, that it's something of reason, law is something rational. That's the sort of the genus of law. But then it's ordered to the common good, uh, and then it, it's proclaimed by the one who has the care of the common good. So there, that's where you need to have a lawgiver. So if natural law is going to be really law, um, 
it's going to have to have all of the elements of the definition that St. Thomas gave. So not only is it going to be something of reason um, and something that appeals to reason and something that's ordered to the common good, uh, in this case of all creation, but it's also going to be uh, from uh, the one who has the care of the common good of all creation, who is God. And I, th I think Suarez, this is one of these examples where Suarez, for example, shows himself to be someone who's mixing elements of Thomism with elements of Scotism, which we could discuss much further. But what I think what's really interesting is that by this stage, when they make the move in the Thomist direction, they're not abandoning the fundamental assumption that the moral morality of virtue and vice and the morality of obligation are two sides of the same coin. They're, right. they're, they're appealing to a particular vice to explain uh, 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 a genuine obligation. Uh, an obligation is one that, disregarding which would involve this very particular vice, this very particular moral badness. So what they're not doing is what, what Bernard and Elizabeth were doing, which is treating uh, the morality of obligation and the morality of, of, of the virtues as if they were two distinct parts of morality, and as if you could have one without the other, right, or right. explain one in completely different terms from the way you explain the other, as both Elizabeth, I think, and, and Bernard know various ways did. Um, and we'll see why Hobbes does this to the theory of obligation in a minute. But what we've got in this scholastic tradition is a common idea of, of the fundamental directive force, the motive force uh, exercised by law as being a force of reason. Yeah. And it's, it's going to engage... We're going to be moved by it um, as rational beings and just considered as, as a force of reason, it's not yet involving the threat of punishment. And it need not do so. Um, supposing the fall had never happened and we were all just perfectly reasonable beings, bearing created reason, um, right. we'd just be moved by this, this rational force without any trouble. We might still need it, right. um, because we're not like God. I mean, one of the very interesting discussions about reason and rationality in, in early modern scholasticism is the way they're increasingly relating <clears throat> the theory of, of um, uh, human mental functioning to the application of the same notions to God uh, in quite a searching way, because they're very interested in looking at us as bearing the image of God through our rationality and our freedom. Um, they're very interested in this notion, partly because it's, 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 it's becoming a big issue at the Reformation, because we're, right. we're having different competing ways of understanding how the image of God works, particularly in relation to the fall between the Protestant and the Catholic traditions. Right. You have the idea of, of total depravity in Calvin, for example, where the image seems to be so obscured by sin that you're no longer able to act rationally. So, so I've always wondered there, does... It strikes me, it struck me when I read Hobbes, but I don't know the history to know whether this was actually accurate or not. It struck me when I read Hobbes that his view in a lot of ways uh, is sort of occasioned by or, or, or the table set so that he can actually make his argument by the, a widespread belief in like total depravity and grace not actually having a healing function on nature. Is that is that accurate or am I just, uh, uh, you know, seeing similarities. It is, it is accurate up to a point. 
um, we'll see that Hobbes waves the Protestant truth banner quite happily, particularly to, <laughs> particularly to embarrass uh, uh, scholastic uh, sympathising Protestants like Bishop Bramall, that Anglican bishop with whom he has uh, a famous debate. He can always embarrass them by, by accusing them of being crypto-Catholics. Uh, um, and so he waves the Protestant truth. And I'm not going to claim that he, 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 was, he was doing this just as a front, but he's not really a Protestant thinker in any deep right, sense. Right, right. He's a naturaliser. Yeah. Right, but, you know, uh, I, I often think that the history of ideas is almost more important for error than for truth, because truth is, you know... you the argument suffices, whereas for error, you've got to find what, what went wrong. And it seems like the the uh, stage is set for him to take that next step uh, by the Protestants. What, what we're going to see Hobbes do is to remove the metaphysics of reason. All right. right. Now, if, you're, if you think the fall um, is so destructive as to remove in particular practical reason... Right. And as that, I think, is at any rate the level of rhetoric is Calvin's picture. It won't remove, for Calvin, theoretical reason. It won't remove a theoretical grasp of practical reason, but it will remove the motivational role played by our rationality. We will no longer be susceptible to, a f to practical reason as a force moving us to decision and action. That's the view you get in the Institutes. And if you, if you take that... Uh, uh, you could see that as, in a sense, uh, a qualification or partial removal of the metaphysics of reason from the story of what's going on now. What Hobbes is going to do is just remove the entire metaphysics of reason. Uh, so all the normative power is going to go away. It just doesn't exist anymore. All, the only power you're going to be left with is ordinary causation. And so, of course, he can talk the Protestant talk... But he's doing something far more radical than Calvin ever right. anticipated. Calvin, in many ways, was, was perfectly right as an Aristotelian at a certain level. Right. Uh, right. Uh, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't an adventurous in that way. But um, Hobbes is. So let's... let's so, go... Yeah, so let, let's go then to Hobbes. Uh, what, what, is, what are Hobbes' key metaphysical moves that allow him to get the results that he's looking for? <laughs> Essentially... Uh, the, the abolition or removal of the Aristotelian scholastic metaphysics of the rational soul. Um, so uh, we will no longer have an intellect uh, which is susceptible to truth as a normative power. We will no longer have a will which is a, a capacity for free decision which is susceptible to goodness, the force of goodness, as a normative power. Um, and, yeah, and goodness itself is redefined, right? It's no longer an objective good. It's now this subjective thing uh, uh, that he, uh, you know, it's uh, whatever, it's your desire, essentially, right? Absolutely. So what, what, what you're going to have is ordinary causation, that operates you on an entire as an entirely material being uh, through your sensory uh, uh, capacity, uh, uh, activating a faculty not of intellect but of imagination, which will involve decaying sense, right. and uh, a motivational faculty 
which is a, a, a capacity for appetite, uh, um, uh, which will uh, be governed by and itself produce nothing more than ordinary causal power to move your limbs into action. Um, so the only actions that you will ever perform will be as an effect of these passive motivations of your appetite, stimulated by uh, representations of the senses. Um, and your, your capacity for deliberation is simply a capacity for um, informing your uh, appetite with lots of centrally presented information about how appetites might be, might be satisfied. <clears throat> Right, and and so the good is gone, and then he also has the the final goal of man is he famously says the endless uh, sort of I forget the exact quote the yeah. endless appetitive there, desire. There is, no, there is no highest good or or last end. There's just uh, a moving from one particular end to another particular end. Absolutely. So g- goodness for your Aristotelian scholastic is a value that. Uh, Outside you, uh, it impacts on you through a force, a normative power that moves you right. to do what's really good. Um, for Hobbes, goodness isn't that at all. That doesn't exist. The, he, he, he moves to a theory of what we mean when we use words like good and bad, and they're used simply to express a motivation that's already present. So instead of goodness being an objective feature that, that produces motivational states within you, um, talk of good simply expresses a motivation that's already present. You call good what you want, and right. you call bad what you dislike and want to avoid. Exactly. <laughs> and in a commonwealth, you call good what the sovereign wants. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a radical. The, the power is so much greater than you have in the Catholic tradition, and we're always accused of, oh, you know, watch out, they're, they're, you know, power and papists and all this. But there, for him, the sovereign can determine what's good and bad for the commonwealth, uh, period. <laughs> We'll, we'll come back to... Yeah, absolutely. This is why Hobbes, Hobbes, though he, as you said in the last podcast, is not straightforwardly a liberal thinker. Right. Um, he, he is actually assembling the intellectual uh, elements of liberalism, but in a way that reminds us that these elements are potentially very totalitarian. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, uh, they are very illiberal in their yeah. implications. Yeah. Uh, this is the original sin of, of, of liberalism. Not <laughs> um, they like that notion. Um, yeah, there's no there's no limit then on the power of the sovereign coming from um, the reality of goodness uh, in things and and the reality of the evil of going against that goodness or the obligation of natural law. There's uh, it was I think it was Valéry Giscard d'Estaing who said that there's no law higher than the law of the state, and uh, <laughs> if that's true, in a, in in effect, the state can decide whatever it wants, whatever. We, this it looks as though that could happen, and it certainly seems to happen in Hobbes. Let's let's just go back to this transforming effect Hobbes has on some very fundamental notions involved in coercion. Yeah. So we've got 
We've got the idea of the a direction, a directive that imposes an obligation. And um, so we've got the idea of obligation. The scholastics see obligation as a kind of rational force uh, that addresses our capacity for rationality. Um, and it's very closely linked in their, concept, in, their, in their idea of the normative and their idea of ethics and politics with another idea, which is an idea of right and uh, a related idea of liberty. <clears throat> now, for uh, scholastic thinkers, and again, look, there, there, are, there are many disagreements uh, uh, about what's going on, but uh, there is the assumption that law... Uh, natural law, in particular, this fundamental law that's uh, antecedent to any humanly uh, uh, um, legislated civil law, canon law, or anything like that, law unites two distinct ways of respecting our nature as bearing the image of God. Um, it unites uh, 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 ideas of right... Uh, now, use can mean the same as lex, it's just the general idea of law, but it can also mean, uh, and, and certainly in early modern scholasticism it has come to mean, a kind of subjective right. A use means something very like what we mean when we talk about people's rights. Right. We had, a, we had an episode on this where we talked about how... Um, in the in the earlier jurists, use meant the thing that was due uh, on account of justice, uh, and then it takes on uh, in this early scholastic period, it takes on more the sense of the claim that you have on the thing that's due to you in justice, and that's very much like the the current subjective notion of right. I think so, and I think up to a point, it it, it is inevitable and unobjectionable. Right. And we're going to find it hard to do without the notion. I think what's very much more important uh, is that we understand it as united with another notion and as fundamentally having the same basis. And this is a notion of obligation. Because uh, the idea of a right, and particularly the idea of a right to liberty, which is fully part of this late scholastic, tradition, a jus libertatis, a right to liberty, right. Uh, is seen as having exactly the same basis as obligation. And they're both based in a more general phenomenon of law, uh, which you can describe using either the word jus or the word lex, which is a normative standard that's recognising our status as bearing in the image of God as capable both of reason susceptibility of normative power and um, uh, the power of freedom as a power to determine for, for ourselves what we do <clears throat> and the power of freedom in particular involves both notions uh, uh, because the right is understood the right to liberty is the right to exercise this power and obligation is uh, this feature of directives uh, that engages our capacity for freedom by directing it and leaving us responsible and therefore bound by the obligation for keeping to the directive. 
because we have this power over our actions, it'd be up to us whether we follow the directive or not, and we can be held responsible for not following it. Genuinely right. deserving of punishment, should punishment be necessary. So, and of course, in fallen humanity, there will be a need for punishment. We'll come back to that. But it's very important that both uh, the right to liberty and obligation are not seen as uh, in tension with each other. They're seen as uh, entirely consonant with each other, harmonious with each other, um, and they involve our uh, bearing the image of God in a way that involves us being rational and free as a social animal, as a social being. Right. So when the directive comes along, it's not uh, pitting other people's interests against ours. And when our right to liberty is being protected and enforced, it's not protecting our interests against others in any very fundamental way. It's protecting everyone's interests... Uh, yeah. and everyone's good within the context of a, of, of a human community. Yeah, I think that that's really key. I think one of the, the consequences of Hobbes' uh, metaphysics or his anthropology is that there is no such thing as a good that's really common, that is shared right. without being diminished. There are only, there's only the private satisfaction that you get from uh, attaining the object of a passion. And so any limit on how you can uh, the extent to which you can follow your passions is just going to limit the amount of good that you get and uh, it, it can be very uh, advantageous to you to limit that because it will also limit other people's ability to take your stuff away and kill you but uh, fundamentally law is going to be a limit on your liberty yeah and, and let's let's tease out exactly this is absolutely crucial. Let's tease out how Hobbes does this, how it takes effect. So we've got this right to liberty, as understood by the scholastics, and it's a right to exercise uh, liberty as a power, freedom as a power. So we've got these two things. I've got this power, capacity to determine for myself what I do, uh, that leaves alternatives available to me, and then I've got the right to exercise the power. And uh, Suarez is, is particularly and admirably clear in De Legibus on laws and God the legislator about how the right is actually an expression of the power. It's, it's a normative recognition of the power. Uh, if we didn't have this power to determine for ourselves what we do, we couldn't possibly have the right to determine for ourselves what to do. Right. And the right. two go together. And you notice in a point I often try and make uh, with students, um, if you come along... In, 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 in England, and I think the same would be true in many other countries, uh, uh, certainly within the English-speaking world, this would happen. And tell me what to do. So, you know, um, move, move over there. Uh, we can use an expression to uh, assert our right not to be told what to do, not to be issued with this directive, by saying, go, go away, or something vernacular, don't you tell me what to do. It's up to me what I do. Right. So the up to me expression um, does double duty in modern English. It reports a power. It's up to me whether I raise my hand or lower it. That's reporting a power over alternatives that I actually possess. But it also reports the right to exercise the power. 
And you'll find in scholastic Latin another word, a Latin word used that does exactly the same double duty. You see it being used by, to do double duty by Aquinas, dominium. Right. It's used right. as a name for the power, but it can also be used as a name for the right. It's lordship over the power, dominium, lordship. Right. Which tells you something very profound going on. We immediately relate the power to the right, which is absolutely right, I think, if they are indeed related. And what Hobbes does, which is going to be an intense problem for the entire liberal tradition, is that he gets rid of the power. He abolishes it. He, there is no such... Liberty, he's very clear, liberty does not exist as a power. There isn't right. a distinctive power over alternatives that we could exercise that distinguishes us from the lower animals and which, because it involves alternatives, is unlike ordinary causation. You know, if I chuck a brick in the window, there's only one thing the brick can do. It breaks the window. Right. But we've got this power over alternatives. It seems very distinct. And Hobbes knew if it existed, it would really be distinctive. And he runs a lot of arguments, which I won't go into because they raise lots of very interesting metaphysical problems, though, uh, that suggests that this power simply doesn't exist. It's not that he's a compatibilist about it. There are elements of Thomist Augustinianism that admit the power as a power over alternatives, but move in somewhat compatibilist directions about it when you're looking at our relationship to God. <clears throat> I won't go into all that. <clears throat> but Hobbes is not a compatibilist about the power. Just because he's a determinist, he, it's not just because he's a determinist he doesn't believe in it, for example. He doesn't mm. believe in it because it's too unlike ordinary causation in terms of its fundamental involvement of alternatives. So he removes the power. So there is no longer a capacity to think of obligation and liberty, uh, uh, of right and obligation, as two ways of giving recognition to this power. In a, in a fundamentally united sort of form of natural law. Um, so what does Hobbes do? He says, they're just opposed notions, and they exist only in tension with each other. Right. They're in a kind of war together. There's a famous passage in Leviathan, which I'll write to you, which, when I first read it, really puzzled me, but I think it's so important to understanding the Hobbesian uh, uh, project. It's, it's um, chapter 14 of Leviathan, of the first and second natural laws and of contracts. And he says, For though they that speak of this subject used to confound use and lex, right and law, yet they ought to be distinguished, because right consisteth in liberty to do or to forbear, whereas law determineth and bindeth to one of them, so that law and right differ as much as obligation and liberty, which in one and the same matter are inconsistent. <laughs> so there's no longer this metaphysical image of God that we bear involving very distinctive powers, uh, a susceptibility to a distinctive power of reason and a very distinctive power of freedom we ourselves exercised. Uh, there's just us as material beings with passions. Right. Um, and so uh, there, is no, there is no metaphysical power of freedom to be given recognition by law in the form of uh, a, a united structure of right and obligation, of liberty and obligation. Liberty is right and, and obligation. So uh, Hobbes re regards law just as about obligation. That's all that law is about. 
And liberty is that thing that is opposed to law so understood and restricted by it. And it, 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 that's so fundamentally different than the tradition going back at least to Augustine that Leo is, is trying to draw Catholics back to in his encyclical that we discussed last time. Because now all of a sudden liberty is whatever law hasn't left you. So of course, uh, the 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 you know in whose service is perfect freedom doesn't make any sense on a Hobbesian view. It it's nonsense. It's just you're contradicting yourself. I mean, if we if we we introduced at this point a, a third notion of we've had liberty as a power or freedom as a power, and then freedom as a right. Uh, which, which is a potential block to coercion, coercive direction. Uh, we can also introduce what I think uh, Pope Leo was talking about when he was talking about moral, moral liberty, or part of what right. he was talking about, which is what I call liberty as a, a state, and it's mm-hmm. a state of liberation. And again, right. this is, we all have an understanding of this. Uh, modern liberals have an understanding of this. Marxists have an understanding of this. Freudians have an understanding of it. Everyone has an understanding of it. Uh, uh, ancient Stoics had an understanding of it. Uh, but we all will have very different ideas about how relate, to relate the idea of liberation to the idea of the right and the idea of the power. As we've seen, some people won't actually have an idea of the power. Most modern philosophers won't. Hobbes didn't. Right. Uh, they will still have the idea of the right. Yeah. And it's interesting, even, even later liberal philosophers who... Um, who have something analogous to the power. I'm thinking here particularly, particularly of Kant. He doesn't think that there's a, a metaphysical power, but he thinks that in the practical realm we have to act as though there were. That is, we have to pretend that there's free will. But nevertheless, he still, even though he, in that, to that extent, he departs from Hobbes um, because he thinks we have to act as though we had free will that we could really in a radical way, even more radical than than, the, than what's true. <laughs> Kant thinks that we have to act as though free will were completely free. You can completely determine yourself through it. Nevertheless, Kant will preserve this opposition between um, liberty and obligation. And he'll think that, in fact, that it's contrary to the dignity of uh, reason to submit to a directive from a higher authority. The only kind of law that you can, that's consistent with human dignity is one that you impose on yourself. Yeah, I, I wonder if this isn't the key to something that I've, I've, I've noticed that uh, liberals in the 19th century version, so most modern people today, uh, seem to have replaced, uh, at least in how they talk, they will often seem to have replaced the good with freedom as the highest goal. Uh, the state exists to ensure freedom. Uh, uh, you know, everything is about self-determination, authenticity, being true to yourself, whatever that is, and determining your own self becomes sort of this highest good. And I wonder if it isn't ultimately traced back to, ironically, Hobbes's sort of uh, opposition between freedom and law, and particularly the way Kant fra- uh, 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 Puts it. I think that's right. I think it is. I mean, I think look, the way I look at these notions, and I think the way the Catholic tradition looks at it is, is I'm going to put it this way in a, in a way that perhaps it's not always put in the scholastic literature, but I think it makes sense. The basic notion of liberty is an idea of a power, 
But remember, it's a power that's, that has a function to take you to the good. Right. It is over alternatives, but it's, it's meant, its function is to give you alternatives by way of the good. Right. Uh, it's, it's a degradation of the power to use it for bad things. Uh, um, then, then you can introduce the idea of the right as something that gives normative recognition to the power. And then you can introduce the idea uh, uh, of, of the idea of the state, uh, the condition, liberation, as involving uh, the proper functioning and perfection of the power. Uh, um, uh, what, what Hobbes does is remove the power. Um, he then doesn't really have a very good way of explaining the right, because the right cannot be a, a law giving recognition to the power uh, as a use. Right. Right. Um, so he will just treat uh, uh, liberty as, 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 as something that is limited by uh, uh, law. But if you're, if you're wanting to get beyond Hobbes and you're wanting to have some sort of end more convincing than just going on a, being alive and satisfying your desires, which is what Hobbes has left you with... <laughs> Um, one way to go, and I think um, um, certainly it's very obviously what's going on in the Millite liberal project, is to start at the other end with the state of liberation. Right. Treat that as a kind of primitive, that's the Millite theory of autonomy, uh, 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 as an ideal. Um, and, then, and then, of course, uh, you have for someone like Mill a, a way of explaining the right <clears throat> as... Uh, within utilitarian terms, uh, something protecting which enables you to get to autonomy. Right. Which, which is the kind of what, what the Millite... So what you're getting within the liberal tradition are various conflicting ways of relating these three uh, kinds of liberty together. And some people will go in one direction, and other people will go in another direction. But they're all reacting to Hobbes's destruction of the original way of packaging the right and the condition in terms of a proper conception of the power and yeah. non-scepticism about it. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. Maybe now we can turn to the, the consequences of this for, um, for the church and for the relation of church and state. Let's go back. I mean, I'm, I'm, I want to hone on into this opposition between liberty and obligation, because yeah. it's it's going to be radically trans. Uh, um, <clears throat> it's going to introduce this opposition that you yourself have been talking about very eloquently between the individual and the community. Right. Because if we think of liberty and obligation as two opposed notions, we're going to immediately fall into the following idea that liberty is is about my interests right. and obligation yes. is about other people's <laughs> interests <Right. laughs> and surely in Hobbes that's exactly what's going on because uh, as he says law was brought into the world for nothing else but to limit the la natural liberty of particular men in such matter that they might not hurt but assist one another there you go <laughs> so immediately when Hobbes blows apart the unity of right and obligation of liberty uh, uh, and law, um, he is introducing this tension, this conflict, fundamentally conflictual separate, uh, uh, conception 
of the individual and the community, or individually, individual and the community understood as no more than other people. Right, right. The community just is other people. <laughs> like uh, uh, Sartre's uh, uh, definition of hell. <laughs> and, and this will come back immediately now connect with the transformation of the theory of what law and coercion is about. Everyone can see that in our fallen world, we need to issue directives and deal with the fact that some people will not follow them immediately. So to get them to follow them, we need to introduce the threats of punishment. Now, in the Aristotelian scholastic tradition, there isn't this fundamental division between the interests of the individual and the interests of the community, because the individual will flourish as a member of the community, as a member of a flourishing community, and will not flourish otherwise, mm-hmm. basically. So, at a very fundamental level, of course, when they do the bad thing and disobey the law, uh, they are damaging themselves as well as other people. They must ultimately be doing that, because their interests are not the, against those of the community. For Hobbes, um, when I start coercing you, I'm immediately addressing you as an individual who is in conflict with the interests of other individuals. And so, um, in a sense, um, I'm, I'm, I'm being oppressive by the very nature of what I'm doing, in a deep way. Right. Obviously, Hobbes will tell a story about how ultimately my interests will be served by this because I won't survive otherwise, uh, if there isn't a community up and running uh, uh, restraining individuals right. from... But, but immediately we've got a conception of coercion as coming from without, asserting other people's interests against mine. <clears throat> Whereas in the scholastic tradition, um, what we've got is... Uh, an assertion of something that really is actually, if I knew about the matter, a right, something that's going to be in my interest. And it's going to be dealing with a failure on my part to respond to reason. So it's going to be dealing with a failure of understanding on my part right. in relation to the true and the good. And so it's very natural to see the fundamental function of punishment as not just about oppressing and containing me but about rectifying a problem in my understanding, communicating the, the truth about truth and goodness to me. Right, right. So the educative function of punishment that's deeply part of the scholastic tradition is intensely related to a number of levels with the idea of distinctive powers of reason and freedom. These powers reconcile my liberty with law, because law is actually giving me liberty, uh, right. both as a right and as, and as a liberating state at the end, uh, a liberating condition. And um, it's a, about an underlying normative structure that leaves my interest as deeply bound up with the flourishing of a community. Right. All this, be, this removal of the metaphysics, this transformation of the metaphysics of power in Hobbes is intensely linked to uh, uh, the introduction of conflictual relationship between liberty and law and liberty and obligation. And it's introducing uh, a kind of a, a conception of 
law and legal direction as not about asserting the force of reason to me, but about limiting the causal power of my motivation to protect the interests of other people in a way that involves nothing more than ordinary causation and immediately involves the threat of something I'm motivated to avoid, which is the threat of punishment. Right. Yeah, yeah St. Augustine says somewhere something like uh, the virtuous man uh, he either says doesn't need the law or, or isn't uh, bound by the law. And what he means is... Uh, so different from what Hobbes means by liberty being opposed to law. What he means is the virtuous man has been taught by law and so has internalized it and doesn't need it to coerce coerce him the way people who are still on the path to virtue still need, just as an adult doesn't need the direction of a parent the way a child does. And it, it shows the difference. I mean, it's just such different worldviews. And when you see it, you realize how radically transfor- transformative modern uh, modern thought has 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 been through thinkers like Hobbes. Yeah, this was the the in that Henby essay. The, uh, <laughs> the I have one, to confess, I, I never made it never through the it. essay. You, you it. <laughs> well, there there are a few good, uh, good things he said about the etymology of authority, which I thought were helpful. Although he then. He then went into an unhelpful contrast between authority and, and power. But um, what he was saying about, which Augusta del Noche has a very interesting paper about this, about how authority is thought about uh, by the ancients as really an aid to growth, to bringing something to its perfection. Whereas in modern times, authority is thought of as just a limit as what limits as it were your growth what keeps you from growing into other people's gardens (laughs) i mean let's let's look at another feature of law and legal direction the connection with with agency action uh and how legal systems uh, direct action because again this is going to be transformed by hobbes and in a way that fits with a very modern conception of what states do And this will ultimately explain why the church can't, for modern liberals, be a coercive authority, which is Hobbes' intention to establish. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, on the scholastic model, I am governed by law as a a susceptible to the power of reason and um, as exercising a power of freedom uh, over my decisions. And in certain ways, uh, possibly through my decisions over some of my beliefs, and I'm going to come back to that, uh, the power that, 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 the, the capacity in my part that, that law addresses is, is a power of metaphysical freedom based on my exercise of reason. Um, and so one of the things that law will constantly be doing, and possibly in a way that engages with my power of freedom in a very, very intimate way, is is not simply change what external actions I perform on the basis of deciding to perform them, what Hobbes will call the voluntary or voluntary actions, which is a modern sense of voluntary, not the scholastic voluntarium, uh, the modern sense of voluntary. It doesn't simply engage with whether I park my car on one side of the road or the other, whether I pay tax at a certain rate, uh, or avoid stealing from you. Things that I can do or go in for on the basis of deciding what I shall do. 
It will engage with, with attitudes that are not straightforwardly voluntary or subject to my will in that way as well, like what I believe and what ends I decide on. <clears throat> it will get present uh, certain goals as good, like the flourishing of my community. It will present certain things to me as true, like that God exists. That's what this, these justifications will do. And law, um, by asserting a force of justification, by, 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 by directing me to attend to justifications, will facilitate my response to this power of reason at the level of my attitudes. And if some of my attitudes are, are though not straightforwardly voluntary, in some way free, uh, are up, uh, it's up to me what I believe about whether God exists or whether... Uh, 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 Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity or the Catholic Church is the true church if it's up to me what I believe about that um, uh, though it's not these aren't straightforwardly voluntary actions I can't just form beliefs simply to win a prize for forming them or, uh, or, or to avoid a penalty just as that concern I, I've got to be responding to some justification um, and uh, it's the justifications, the evidence, the testimony for these truths, for the for the goodness of a particular outcome that I'm responding to uh, in the end when I form my belief or when I take my decision. And the law is getting me to for, to go in for those reason responses to the force of reason, which is it's enabling me to respond to by directing me to the mental objects that 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 that. that, that exercise this power of me. That's one model of how law works. And you can even have laws on, on attitudes that aren't straightforwardly voluntary like belief, like heresy laws as in right. the canon law of the Catholic Church. Right, uh, it's, right. it's a crime not to believe certain things if I'm baptised. Uh, um, that will be enforced if I express my unbelief in the external forum. Right, because through baptism you have... Um, the obligation to believe, and you also have, um, in root, you have the ability for supernatural faith through baptism. So the punishment of heretics are meant partly um, to to reestablish justice uh, by giving them what they deserve, but also to lead them back to the truth, to force them to attend to uh, the truth and the evidence for the truth, which they're able to accept because baptism has given them that capacity. Yes. So I can't make the saving act of faith without grace, without right. this force directing me to the truth. But the force still leaves me strictly free. Uh, uh, it's up to me in the end whether I, I respond to grace, uh, uh, which is why my response to grace can be a basis of of, of merit, uh, uh, right, um, right. and um, so when I form the saving act of 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 faith, it's in response to the truth and the supernatural revelation of the truth. Um, it's not simply to avoid a penalty, but right. the penalty would have played a word. And I couldn't form a belief just to avoid a penalty. You know, if I offer you a prize right, right. for believing that the Battle of Hastings <laughs> took place in 1065, I mean, no matter how big a prize I offered you, uh, or no matter how great the penalty I threaten you with for believing anything else, you, you couldn't respond just to that. 
Yeah. I'd have yeah. to I have to offer you a route involving a, a force of some sort of value, like truth and goodness, into the belief, truth in the case of belief, at the natural or supernatural level. And this, yeah. of course... Yeah. yeah, I mean, Augustine's uh, writings on the Donatists is, is very helpful here, where he, he, Augustine himself changed his mind about this. At first he thought that um, using the coercive power of uh, the Roman Empire against the Donatists would be counterproductive because they would just come back to the Catholic Church hypocritically and in their hearts they would still be Donatists. But then his experience actually showed him that that's not what happened, that in fact uh, the the Donatists then turned, the, the, the force that was used against them turned their minds to the evidence, broke the force of bad habit, as he says, um, and that then they were very grateful for having been uh, led back to the truth. Yeah, absolutely. So what, 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 what's going on is that the law is, by acting as an edu- educative facilitator of our response to normative power, enabling us to do something that for the Aristotelian scholastic tradition is deeply important which is form the right attitudes. Because they have a further conception, which we'll see disappearing in the liberal tradition, that the well-being of a community depends to a significant degree on our having the right attitudes. Right. Uh, it's not just enough for the, the, the flourishing of community that we refrain from theft, right. uh, refrain from a certain voluntary action, whether I steal from you or not. We should... Uh, all share a common respect for and belief in the value of property and respect for it. So, so we have about 15 minutes left here. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit about how does this uh, affect, how does this modern view, how does Hobbes's view, uh, we've touched on it, but say a little more about how his view uh, eliminates the power of the church, the course of power of the church? Well, if all, of, all, that, all that law is essentially doing is governing actions that we can perform and refrain from voluntarily, in the Hobbesian sense, uh, as a means to various ends we've decided on, like avoiding punishments, then the law is only going to be able to address things like whether I steal... Um, or uh, where I park my car, uh, or uh, what rate I pay tax. It can't really engage with my attitudes. Right. And so we're going to see uh, the sort of community as something, the interests of which law protects, as something that's simply a matter of what voluntary actions I perform and of restraining voluntary actions to um, prevent conflict between people's desires or what they want at the level of the voluntary. Right, because there's nothing, there's nothing, I mean, even even ourselves, it's, uh, there's no power of reason itself. It's just having different appetites sort of compete by giving them, you know, various bits of information. So what you will do is try and form a conception of what the state is about within that general framework. And what political and what political community is about, 
at that level of that general framework. So you might well think of it simply as about uh, institutions that restrain uh, mutually disadvantageous conflict at the level of the voluntary. And the interests that you see as of political significance and uh, of interest to the law, um, the the good as far as the law is concerned will be to do with uh, external goods that are commonly sources of conflict. We're moving towards something like John Rawls's thin theory of the good. Right. Really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you will see what we, are, our internal values, what we really think, uh, the world of the substantive conception of the good, as they use it in the political world, as something that's not the law's concern, as not the state's concern. Right. And then we've already got the framework <laughs> of modern political liberalism, haven't we? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's often I've often thought liberalism is is like uh, some variant of Hobbesian with like uh, with a with a with a veneer of uh, hypocrisy over it with a pretense of neutrality. <laughs> He's very bracing to reads because there's no pretense of neutrality with him. But there's one there's one thing. Uh, this is kind of a tangent, but I want to get uh, your opinion on this, Tom, because it's something I've wondered about. The what about Hobbes's um, his acceptance of Protestant theology, at least nominally? Do you think what 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 a degree of pretense do you think is is involved there? Does Hobbes <laughs> really believe in God or not? Well, he has a, he has a very strange conception of the God as a sort of he's a sort of uh, the ultimate source of causal power, the limit. Uh, uh, of our fundamentally material conception of the world, and uh, let's not let's not even go what he does to the Trinity. Um, uh, <laughs> but I think he's actually quite sincere in all this. I mean, the amount of effort okay. he puts into biblical exegesis in the Vatham suggests somebody who's not just playing some Straussian trick. Um, he really did believe this stuff, um, but he's obviously a profoundly naturalising figure. Because uh, remember, the theory of grace, which even Protestants believe in, is a theory of a power. Um, sanctification occurs in Protestantism as well. It's, it's, it's distinguished from justification right. in a way that isn't... But it's still... Well, if you don't believe in the power of reason, um, why should you believe in the power of grace? They're both kinds of normative power. They're analogous right. to each other. And as we know, in late scholasticism, there are increasingly sophisticated theories of how to fit, fit grace within the Aristotelian uh, causal right. theory. Quite rightly, quite rightly. Um, get rid of one, you're getting rid of the other. And, of course, Hobbes is getting rid of both, because he's getting rid of normative power. So he's not, he's not in any sense, a recognisable Reformation figure. He's, he's, he's subversive, but I, th- I don't think he's dishonestly subversive. Um, but, of course, he's got rid of the church because um, the church is clearly not about dealing with conflicts at the level of external goods at the point of the voluntary. I mean, that's, uh, you know, right. I know the prosperity gospel is pushed by some people, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe our friends in the Action Institute are going to explain uh, 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 the supernatural end as a form of a supernatural version of Pareto optimality, but I, I, I really don't think that this is, this is a plausible project. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so what Hobbes has done clearly has reconceived what coercive authority is about in a way that makes it profoundly implausible 
to see the church as a bearer of that. And, of course, if your fundamental model of coercive authority is that, and someone comes along, like uh, someone who writes for Josias, or someone who's an Orthodox Catholic generally, and says, you must realise, guys, the church is a coercive authority. Read the Code of Canon Law, guys. Uh, um, You'll get very badly frightened. You'll think you're dealing with a nutter. You'll think, as Michael (laughs) Hanby says, you're dealing with a Hobbesian, because you've got a Hobbesian conception of what coercive authority is. Right. That's what happened to him. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. Oh, my. Well, that's as good a point, I think, as we're going to find. Thank you so much for joining. This was uh, super helpful and super interesting to me. And uh, at long last, we had you on the podcast. We've been talking about it for a while. And uh, we're so glad to have had you. This was great. Well, lovely to to speak to you. And um, let let us hope for better times. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed.